Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. Man, I just got a, a, a Taco Mac is open and ready to service. <laughs> Dining room service. It, uh, y'all, if you've never been to a Taco Mac in, in uh, the Atlanta area, man, they got what? A, a, a billion beers on tap and, and good wings and burgers. I love me some Taco Mac. I like their nachos. It, 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 it's a total distraction. Welcome. How are you this morning? It is Friday. At the bottom of this hour, we're going to deviate from everything, and, and I want you to be here. Um, uh, you know, I feel bad for authors who have books coming out uh, in global pandemic. They can't go on book tours. And there's a, he's a, a Georgia native who lives in Nashville, Matt Moore, who is a cereal griller, and he's got a cookbook out called Cereal Grilling. And he's going to join me at the bottom of the hour. Uh, to talk about his new cookbook. He's got some fantastic cookbooks uh, on the South, on barbecue, uh, the Southern Gentleman's Cookbook and, and others. And I'm, I'm delighted. I've never actually talked to him in person. We've exchanged notes online, so he'll be here with me. Right? I, I need to talk about the Mike Flynn stuff. Let me just say real quick, I, I think the hysteria is a little bit overboard here. Let me play you a couple of clips before I really delve in to tell you what I think. Here is uh, the CNN MSNBC meltdown. It's a pretty dark place on social media. The very first comment after the story broke that I saw on Twitter was, Putin, if you're listening, high five your asset. And there are Russian flags and Russian memes popping up. And now we see Bill Barr really just doing Donald Trump's dirty work. Now he has in his back pocket a little AG who saw to it to let Flynn go. It is, uh, I think, breathtaking dishonesty from the Justice Department. This is the collapse of the Justice Department. You know, Katyal, you caught my breath with the collapse of the Justice Department. This is a case where the fix was in. The fix is in. Not good for the rule of law. It's not good for morale. And it's not a fair outcome. This is an absolute injustice. I don't worry anyone who, who cares about the rule of law. Mike Flynn's lawyers have been engaged in a smear campaign. This is a political and incredibly destructive thing to the rule of law. It's all heading towards the president wiping the Mueller investigation uh, out of the history books, at least as far as criminal convictions. That was the, the total meltdown across the networks. Here's Dana Perino. There's a lot of political leadership during the Democratic administration of Barack Obama that have on background been whispering to reporters and amongst themselves for years about how this is all on the merits and we're all going to our eyes are going to be open to all these things that were going on. And none of that has ever come to fruition. And they're they're in a position now that they either have to spill it or admit it that they didn't have what they said they had. And I am glad that the Justice Department is pushing because I worked there for a little while, right after 9-11. And it's our justice system is an amazing institution, but it has to be protected. And if protecting it means that you have to turn it upside down and look under all the rugs and the rocks, then that might be what we have to go through. It might be a little bit painful to, as a country to go through to watch it, but it also might be very eye-opening as to what was happening, and they wonder why people are skeptical of institutions, of the government, of the media. I mean, this is a great example. The last thing I would say is, um, you know, for Michael Flynn, somebody who I knew during the Bush administration, I, I am glad for him tonight, for him to have this peace of mind, and I hope that he sleeps really well. 
And last one, uh, the Attorney General, Bill Barr, asked by CBS News about this. A crime cannot be established here. They did not have a basis for a counterintelligence investigation against Flynn at that stage. Does the fact remain that he lied? Well, you know, people sometimes plead to things uh, that turn out not to be crimes. What should Americans take away from your actions in the Flynn case today? I want to make sure uh, that we restore confidence in the system. There's only one standard of justice. Yeah, okay, let me, I have tried to form a, a, a strong opinion on this. I, and let me just give you my honest take here. Is some of you will be really outraged by what happened. Most of you, I suspect, will be delighted by what happened. I personally, I can't really get excited one way or the other. So you know the Tiger King documentary on Netflix. I I tried to watch it. I I really did. Everybody was talking about it. I figured like I I, I should pay attention to this pop culture moment. I I got it most of the way through the second episode. I was like this is just gross. This is everyone here is a horrible person. They should all be eaten by the tigers. I mean, there there are no there are no good people in this entire thing. Uh, Carol Baskin is a terrible person. Uh, the, the the Tiger King guy is a terrible person. All the other people are terrible people. About the only guy who I thought was kind of interested and neat was, was the mob boss in Florida who apparently fed people to the tigers. And I don't even know that he did that. That's just speculation. It's just the the whole thing is a train wreck. And that's kind of what I feel here. Mike Flynn's not a good person. He was ousted by Barack Obama for for a series of things, and that makes him a hero to a number of people. But he isn't necessarily a hero. He lied to Mike Pence, the vice president of the United States. Uh, And the people who pursued him are not nice people. Uh, They were vain, vindictive, and petty. They went in believing the worst about the Trump administration and decided that uh, all of their prior convictions were true. They couldn't be dissuaded. We know now that the FBI, in their pursuit of justice, went in with an idea, and when they saw evidence that competed with their presuppositions, they either ignored the evidence or they twisted. These weren't good people either, but neither is Mike Flynn. There are no heroes here. Yay for Mike Flynn. He's not going to go to jail. And, you know, to those on on MSNBC and CNN say, this is the end of justice in America. Uh, Should Loretta Lynch have met with Bill Clinton? What, what about justice then? What about Eric Holder saying that he was, was Obama's wingman and uh, pursued little sisters of the poor and a, and a baker in Colorado and, and turned a blind eye to, to a host of ills in this country that related to partisans on the left? The idea that somehow the Justice Department became a partisan weapon in the Trump administration is nonsense. It is revisionist history. And what's happening here is uh, we see so many people in the media are of the left and sympathetic to Obama and cast Obama in the best light and cast Trump in the worst light. They're not even open to the possibility that maybe the FBI had too heavy of a hand here and maybe they pursued this in ways they shouldn't have. Concurrent to that, you've also got a bunch of Trump people saying, you know, maybe Flynn wasn't the best guy and maybe he shouldn't have lied to the FBI or the vice president of the United States. Why do we have to take a real side on this? We should take a side on justice. And I honestly can't tell you because all we've got are partisans on both sides. There's really no one out there right now looking at this saying, you know what? 
here's what really happened. You know, the guy I actually trust the most in all of this is, is Bill Barr, the attorney general. I actually do trust Bill Barr. And I, I, I think the media is, is being a willful idiot in, in their pursuit of Bill Barr. And what I mean by that is it is very obvious that Bill Barr, the attorney general, is the smartest person in the Trump administration. He stays completely in the shadows until he is needed to do a dog and pony show that placates the president of the United States and is otherwise ruthlessly competent to the point of ignoring the president and the White House until such time as he can't help it. And then he comes out and he says all the stuff he knows the president wants to hear and doesn't necessarily follow through with it. He plays his role perfectly. And I really do think a lot of the contempt for the media against Bill Barr has nothing to do with him being a puppet of the president or the president's henchman. It has everything to do with the bulk of the media knowing he is ruthlessly competent and they can't have a ruthlessly competent attorney general in the Trump administration. They have tried to chase every competent person out of the White House. I mean, hell, the media has tried to chase uh, Anthony Fauci and, and, and Dr. Burks out of the White House for being too competent. They want the president to fall on his face. As long as these competent people are here, they keep the president from falling on his face. So, I mean, in all of this, Bill Barr is, is the person I trust the most. And Bill Barr has, has given to the Trump administration many things, but he has also not given them things they want. But a lot of this comes back to the Russia investigation, too. And, and we're learning more and more that Democrats and the media sold us a bill of goods on the Russia stuff that isn't actually true. There was no collusion or collaboration. And, and ultimately, Mike Flynn was allowed to have the conversations he had with the Russian foreign minister. Ultimately, Mike Flynn, being the incoming national security advisor to the president, had flexibility. This Logan Act stuff is nonsense. But I keep coming back to Flynn wasn't really a good guy. I know he's been built up to many people through uh, Fox and talk radio as being some sort of great guy. I, 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 he lied to Mike Pence. As the administration was coming in, Mike Flynn was willing to lie to the vice president of the United States, and he was willing to lie to the FBI. And we can say, as as the as people argue, that the lies that he made to the FBI were not related to the actual investigation. His lies were not critical or substantial. He he lied. Should he go to jail for those lies? At this point, I'm kind of indifferent to it. I think the bigger story here is that we can't get straight and honest answers from anyone because partisanship has so broken the country right now that the quest for justice at these sorts of levels is uh, a, a, an extraordinary level beyond where it should be. And you gotta you gotta show grace to to people who disagree with you now because we're in uncharted territory. I mean, the Trump administration itself is largely uncharted territory, but there's something else here too. All of these people saying that the what the Trump administration is doing is bad, is wrong, it's never been done before, they didn't pay attention to eight years of the Obama administration. 
To the extent that Donald Trump's administration is doing stuff new, they're building on precedents set by the Obama administration. And I suspect if Biden gets elected in November, he'll surround himself with a bunch of militant progressives and they will build on precedents set by the Trump administration. That's why for all my years on radio, I've been saying precedent matters. When Trump came in, I've been saying precedent matters. Precedent really actually does matter here. And we will not see a reversion to the mean. All of these people who are outraged by this, when the Biden administration does something similar, will say, well, Trump did it. Well, I thought you were outraged then, should you? No, no, Trump did it. That's what we're going to see. In the same way, you, you have a lot of Trump supporters who, when, when the president does something he probably shouldn't do, say, well, Obama did it. it, it it's We've reverted to kindergarten antics. They started it as opposed to it's it's right or it's wrong. I just I I'm I refuse to root for Mike Flynn here, nor can I root for the Justice Department and the FBI. That they're they're just bad people on all sides. It is a train wreck. And it, what is galling to me though is the revelation of just how partisan the FBI became under James Comey. And if there's a real bad guy here, I think it's got to be Comey. And it's kind of galling to see Andrew McCabe on CNN mouthing off about all this stuff when we know that Andrew McCabe is no hero. In fact, we know Andrew McCabe did a lot of stuff wrong. So even on CNN, the the supposed experts that CNN has hired have partisan motivations, and we know that from the record. So you can't get straight news from the one network that's always billed itself as the straight news network because they've hired a bunch of anti-Trump partisans to cast themselves in some veneer as legit. Or or you've got Neil Cattell on, on MSNBC, who's a, a former uh, U.S. attorney. He hates Donald Trump. You can't get accurate information from this guy. He's a partisan hack. Where, where are the honest brokers anymore? I, I, I don't know that they exist very much in the media anymore. And to the extent that I see an honest broker out there, I think it's William Barr. But you can't say that to the left because they think he's some sort of uh, conciliary for the president as opposed to the man is wicked smart, knows how to do his job and navigate the course to make sure that he protects his department at a time of total disruption. I think a 100 years from now, historians will say that William Barr was the man of the hour who did what he had to do to protect the Justice Department from a, a Trump administration that can't understand why the Justice Department needs to be nonpartisan while doing the things he had to do to get the president off his back. And this is one of those things. You know what? Here's the thing. If Mike Flynn wound up going to jail, the president would have pardoned him. And that ultimately would have caused more problems than this. The, the, the fighting and the squabbling over amending the Constitution and the pardon power of the president and on and on it went. And I, I, my guess, I don't know. I've never talked to the guy. I don't even know the guy. My guess is that William Barr kind of knew that too. Uh, and it was better for him to do what he did and take the media heat uh, than for this to advance to the point where the president felt the need to have the Justice Department draft an order to pardon Mike Flynn from an investigation launched by the Justice Department. At least that's what I'm thinking. But I could be wrong. I don't know because I don't trust anybody in the media right now to give me a straight story on this on either side. You can call in 877-973-7425. I am happy to take your phone calls. Coming up after the bottom of the hour, Matt Moore is going to join me. Uh, right now, I want to bring you up to speed on, uh, well, the president spoke last night on the Ahmad 
Arbery situation here in Georgia. Tonight's got Georgia right now. There's been some dramatic video of an unarmed black Georgia man who was shot by police while on a jog. Been a lot of protests about this. Have you seen the video and your reaction to that situation? So I'm getting a full report on it this evening. Uh, my heart goes out to the uh, parents and to the loved ones of the young gentleman. It's a very sad thing, but uh, I will be given a full report this evening. Haven't seen the video yet, to be clear. No, I haven't. Uh, he, I, he has not spoken since. Uh, he did see the video last night. Uh, they have arrested now Gregory McMichael and his son. And there's now, you know, there are all always in everything there are always contrarians and and maybe sometimes i can be contrarian on some things you know i i i have this natural hesitation when i see everyone running in one direction uh, i think maybe i need to go in the other direction from the herd and, and that's just that's how i'm programmed i guess some people are and i see in some contrarians that man we should go slow we see the media rush to justice maybe maybe the kid was the burglar it, it doesn't matter in my mind this is a, a young man who was gunned down by people who blocked his path, said they were conducting a citizen's arrest, and they wound up killing him. Uh, it, justice does not come from the mob in the United States of America. Justice does not come from the mob. Who does that? Who goes out and decides that they're going to be the, the 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 armchair law enforcement? And see, part of the problem here is is the the father had a, had been in the sheriff's department, was now an investigator, and I guess he decided he was still law enforcement, even though he wasn't. And you and I have all encountered we 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 know of people who are like that, and they nearly got away with it. There's no justification for them doing what they did. It undermines legitimate uh, citizens' arrest. That's what they claim. Uh, the citizens' arrest law in Georgia is pretty clear. That's one of the other uh, other striking things here is the citizens' arrest law in Georgia is pretty clear. You've got to see the crime occurring or have direct knowledge of its occurrence, which they didn't have, and yet they suffered no consequences in February. It should not have to take a video to cause national outrage to provoke justice. Now, a lot of people, by the way, are now throwing the process and the Attorney General of Georgia under the bus saying um, they should immediately uh, be going to trial. But because the Attorney General removed this from the local prosecutor uh, and gave it to a, a special prosecutor who wasn't conflicted out, they've got to go to a grand jury. But they have arrested the father and the son. Uh, yes, it is a delay. But it's a good delay because it means progress is happening as opposed to a cover-up. You know, there's no way to defend what happened, even if, in the worst-case scenario, even if Mr. Arbery was was the person they believed him to be and had committed a crime, it was not for them to kill him. It was not for them to try to arrest him. He was not in the commission of a crime. And for people out there now to be circulating videos saying, oh, it's proof he, he he was in trouble in high school, he was a criminal in high school, who the hell cares? A young man is dead, and local law enforcement in Brunswick, Georgia, decided to stick up for the killers. You cannot tell me if it was two black men uh, attempting to make a citizen's arrest of a white man in Brunswick, and the same thing happened, that local law enforcement would have been as trusting and accommodating of the two men. They, they absolutely would not have. It should not take 
national outrage to get justice. And at least justice is coming. Justice will come. It'll be up to a jury. And all of this, then that's the whole point here. All of this should be before a jury. Not not a vigilante gang of two or more people. All of it, all the evidence should be before a jury. Let the jury decide. And they decided in Brunswick to short-circuit that process. And at least now, it'll take a little longer, but it'll happen. And there will be justice. Regardless of what the justice is, there will be justice before a court of law, before a jury, and they'll decide. And that's good. That's the process we should have had all along. I tell you people all the time that... I don't just talk about the news of the day and politics and cultural stuff. We do some theology on occasion and some cooking on occasion. Some of you got mad at me the other day explaining gluten content and protein content in bread. I personally thought it was a brilliant monologue. Nonetheless, uh, occasionally, though, I stumble across things I I actually want to make sure get some broader exposure. And and we're headed to the weekend. I thought this would be the perfect time. Uh, There's a great new cookbook out. I actually bought a copy. It's not a review copy because I have every single cookbook he's ever written. And so this one came out and I was going to get it as well. Uh, Matt Moore, the author of The South's Best Butts and also The Southern Gentleman's Kitchen, has a new cookbook out, Cereal Griller, and Matt is joining me by phone. Matt, welcome. How are you? Hey, good morning, Eric. Thanks so much for having me. So I, I got to tell you that the first cookbook of yours I ever got was a gift, and it was the uh, Southern Gentleman's Kitchen. And I, I've got this fantasy and lights of mine where one day I'm going to build a whole pit in the backyard and I'm going to buy lots of bottles of bourbon and stay up all night with friends and smoke a whole hog and, and ruin the backyard and have good eats. And you, you had a guide in the cookbook. I'm like, this one day I'm going to do this. I haven't gotten there yet. One day I will. Oh. Now, yeah, it's um, it's one of my favorite pleasures and a true Southern tradition to roast a whole hog. So um, we've given you a good outline in the Southern Gentleman's Kitchen on how to pull that off. And uh, you've got the first step right. you got to have a lot of bourbon. Yeah, d- absolutely. Now, this latest one, I, I got to tell you, I, I went into this buying it, and I'm so used to getting a, even a cookbook that, that's a, a grilling cookbook, and, and half of the recipes are actually uh, slow roasts in a smoker, and this is actually for the grill. Uh, actual real grilling, and I've been impressed with the the caliber of the recipes that have come into it. Well, thank you, man. Being a Georgia boy, uh, we certainly know the difference between barbecue and grilling. And uh, one of my favorite professors at University of Georgia told me one day that nothing good happens after 2 o'clock in the morning. And I think we all know in barbecue, nothing really good happens uh, above 300 degrees. But in grilling specifically, you know, everything good is happening uh, above 300 degrees. And you talk about uh, science and geeking out. We spent some time talking about the Maillard reaction, which uh, talks about all that, that goodness that comes from brown food is good food. So we focus on on hot and fast throughout Cereal Griller. Well, how do you come up with recipes for a cookbook? I, I've always wanted to ask someone who's done a cookbook how they do it. What do you, You've got three now, and, and what do you do to come up with these recipes? Well, uh, Southern Gentleman's Kitchen was really my homage to my family, my mother, grandparents, and uh and great friends around the South. Um, so I kind of ran out of my own recipes after writing that book. So with South Best Butts and uh, the new book, Cereal Griller, we go out on the road. Uh, and we interview pit masters and grill masters and, and tell their life stories and glean their recipes. You know, one of my favorites, uh, we stopped in Atlanta and, and met a gentleman by the name of Cadillac. 
who cooks outside a place uh, called the Claremont Lounge, which is kind of oh, a yeah. late night institution. And uh, Cadillac. Where, where good stuff characters. does happen after 2 a.m. on occasion. <laughs> yeah, that's right, man. So uh, he's a he's a formerly trained chef and one of my favorites. And uh, just spending days with people like that and getting their stories and their recipes. I, you know, I always get asked, what's one of your favorite stops? I will tell you that he does a, a, a flank and rib with a grilled jalapeno that honestly was one of those bites along the the writing process that just stopped me in my tracks. And I was really happy to feature him in the book. Well, you know, I got to commend you on this because I, I I have, my wife says it, it's, I need a 12 step program because I have so many cookbooks. We, we actually had to build <laughs> bookshelves to house all of my cookbooks. And I, I read them like books. I get so much knowledge because uh, I, I like to improvise when I cook, but get knowledge from the cookbooks. And it, it's rare to actually read cookbooks where there are, you, you copiously document uh, where you're getting inspiration from and interview the chefs. And that's so rare in a cookbook to actually have a profile of the people who've been doing the cooking. And I, as someone who has a ton of cookbooks and never sees it, I appreciate you willing to put the spotlight on some of these people. It gives me a roadmap of people to go visit too. Yeah. I mean, for me, my job is to really sit back and have you be right seat with me. I mean, obviously uh, we traveled 10,000 miles in just a few months to write this book. Um, Nashville is home for me now. I grew up in Georgia and, uh, it was a lot of fun to fly my little Piper Cherokee down to Athens, Georgia, and feature the grill, and then straight into Fulton Brown um, and go meet Cadillac. And, and that's one of our ways to do it. I want you to be in the right seat with me. I want to tell those stories. I want to recognize these people. Uh, and, of course, share share the recipes, too. And exactly as you said, it's sort of like a TV show in a book. We go all across the country, different types of cuisines, different personalities, great recipes. And then we round out the rest of the book with about 75 of my own recipes that I do actually come up with. Um, when I'm cooking here in Nashville and have that inspiration. So it's a whole lot of fun, and uh, I'm really blessed to be able to do it. All right. I've already got my favorite recipe in in the cookbook. And, and if you're just tuning me, I'm talking to Matt Moore. He is the author of the new cookbook, Cereal Griller. And I, so I, I'm going to ask you first, what's yours? Favorite recipe in the book? Oh, goodness. Well, I told you the best bite that I had, which was the uh, Mexican-style flank and rib with a, a grilled jalapeno. Right. Um, but if I were to be very honest, I think um, the cowboy ribeye that we picked up from Jerry Baird, who is a chuck wagon cook on the uh, hill country of Texas, I, I think the stories and, and maybe the bourbon uh, that day, but also just <laughs> a good ribeye steak grilled over mesquite, um, just super classic salt and pepper. Let the grill do the work. Um, you know, it's something I'm actually cooking here <laughs> just to short some steak and eggs for uh, for breakfast. All right, so my favorite one, the, the sorghum glazed pork chops. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Classic ingredient that I think is, uh, you know, long overrated is sorghum, and it gives that just that sweet flavor with uh, the pork. It's always just a natural affinity for each other, and uh, I'm a huge pork chop fan. We've been grilling out every single night. You got that nice bone-in pork chop, savory and sweet, uh, smoky and charred. It's just a delicious one. My my wife is is has always been more the pork chop fan than me, and and I, I finally when I discovered that you know if I brine them, uh, use just some brown sugar and salt in them, and and, and pep up the flavor a little bit, I'm I'm totally down with the pork chop now. Uh, so let me ask you, let me get you into the into the nuts and bolts of grilling now. So we we interacted on Instagram the other day. I did get my my Rectech pellet smoker. I've had my big egg for big green egg for 11 years and i feel like i've mastered it and now i just want something easy where i can set it and go to bed <laughs> but <Sure. laughs> along the way uh what sort of do you have every sort of grill out there or I, I see occasionally you get the the you've got the komodo style grill in your backyard do you just have a collection of them 
I do. We just moved houses here um, in Nashville, and unfortunately, my backyard was hit directly by the the tornado that I was going to ask on March second. But I have a, a golden cast iron grill which weighs about eight hundred pounds. So even though the backyard was destroyed, uh, that grill held up pretty well. But <laughs> I do have a few uh, different grill types that my wife calls the Q Cave, and um, you know I certainly love that Rectech grill. There's a lot of great grills coming out of Georgia just in general. And pellet grills are fantastic, exactly what you just described. And we spend some time in the book talking about, you know, different fuels, different grill types. And my goal is to get everybody grilling. So uh, obviously with a Komodo-style grill, you're, you're still having to maintain temperature control. You have to check it every 20 or 30 minutes. But I'll be honest with you, Eric, I, I don't have a pellet grill because you just set it and forget it. And it doesn't give uh, me the excuse to tell my wife that I'm outside really working on the grill and grilling. So she's got other things for me to be doing. So um, <laughs> I think the pellet grill is a great grill. Uh, obviously, you got to have access to electricity. So getting that thing out for a game day right? Uh, and then getting it hot. You know, one thing I will tell you is that uh, for the folks that do have pellet grills at home, you get that great flavor, set it and forget it. But oftentimes getting that nice sear, it doesn't really cook yeah. a whole lot more than 100, the 400, 450 degrees. So take this little tidbit today put a cast iron pan on the grill if you're wanting to get a nice sear on a steak or if you want to get that crispy burger um, that's how you really will maximize the best out of that pellet grill yeah you know as a matter of fact so i've got when we first got married i I had a charcoal grill and discovered my wife wasn't a big fan of the charcoal flavor uh so i I updated to upgraded to a weber and eventually i got a big i'd never heard of the brand dcs and so now i have this big 48 inch dcs grill with the uh, ceramic rods that gets up to about 2,000 degrees to, to, or 1,500 to sear a steak perfectly. It's got a 75-pound rotisserie on it. So I do most of my cooking on there. So just for the slow roasting stuff or the smo- slow smoking stuff, uh, I, I've kind of worn out on my big green egg just because I want something bigger that can hold multiple butts at one time. Uh, so sure. now I've got both, and now i got to get a backyard where I can actually put them all out there instead of leaving them on the side porch so my wife complains. <laughs> I, I, um, I can't I can't argue with you. All right, so you, you got Serial Griller, you've got the South Best Buds. I've I've got all three of these books. Uh, along the way, we've talked about recipe development and it, what's it like to actually get comfortable with a chef, uh, so that you can kind of glean information from him about his best recipes. You know, it just kind of varies. I mean, a lot of these folks, especially with Serial Griller. Um, as the longer I've been doing this, obviously the more connected you become. And, and there were a few folks that I really kind of sought in my crosshairs that I wanted to track down, like Michael Solomonoff up in Philadelphia, who runs the best restaurant in America, Zahav. He's a James Beard outstanding chef. Uh, I became friends with him because uh, American Airlines kept canceling my flights in Philadelphia, and I would just go eat at his restaurant. Um, <laughs> Ashley Christensen, who uh, is also a James Beard best chef in America, one of my best friends here in Nashville, who's a great musician, Thad Cockrell, spent some time in, in Raleigh, so he kind of a friend of a friend. And even Cadillac, uh, one of my best friends in Atlanta, Matt Barnett, had told me all about Cadillac and how I had to feature him. And uh, when we finally decided to do a grilling book, that was the place that I needed to go. And I think um, one of the coolest things is, you know, I'm not asking all the time for secret recipes. It was a little harder in South Best Butts to get, like, the secret barbecue sauce and the secret rub. Right. But, you know, good food brings people together. And, and overall, I think most people are really willing to share their stories. And, you know, I have the accountability to uh, to make sure that I represent them well in their recipe because a lot of these are family traditions. And uh, it brings me a lot of joy to do that. Well, I, I think you really do. I, I've been a, a big fan of your cookbooks, Matt, for a while. I, I've gotten so many great 
bits of inspiration and sauces and recipes out of them. So it's it's a real pleasure to be able to talk to you. And folks, if you want to get Cereal Griller, text the word data to 33777. I'll text back a link to Matt's book, Cereal Griller, at Amazon so you can order it. Uh, and look, I appreciate you taking the time to stop by this morning and talk. It gives me a way to, to get out of the headlines of the day. And it's just it's it's a great pleasure to talk to someone who I've admired through your cookbooks for a while. Well, it's back at you, Eric, man. Thanks so much for having me, and I uh, hope you have a great weekend grilling. You too. Thanks very much. Matt Moore, the, the book is Serial Griller. If you're on the live stream, this is it. You can get it at Amazon. Text the word DATA to 33777. Uh, but his books are all good. Uh, the, it, the A Southern Gentleman's Kitchen was the uh, first one I got. It was a gift several years ago from a friend, and then the South Best Butts as well, which has some great other sides. It's got a great macaroni and cheese recipe in it. It's got... Um, good sauce recipes. I'm just, I, I've been a fan of his. He's a Georgia boy, went to UGA and there's some great recipes from some places around Georgia in the cereal griller book, but it was nice. You know, you get a lot of these books and, and they talk about grilling and whatnot and you get them and it's actually a book on barbecue and, and slow cooks as opposed to actually putting a piece of meat on a grill and getting it seasoned right. And I actually, I, I burned hamburgers the other day cause I wasn't paying attention. My grill, I had this professional grill and I realized y'all don't care. But I have this professional grill, and it can get really hot, and I didn't pay attention to it the other day, and burned hamburgers, which I've never done in my life. Uh, so we're going to have a do-over tonight. But, again, if you want the book, uh, text the word DATA to 33777. I will send you back a link to Amazon.com where you can order Matt's book. It actually is really good. He's got some great recipes in it uh, beyond just meats as well. He's got dessert recipes, bean recipes, uh, all sorts of vegetable recipes. You can do them all on your grill. It's worth considering. I've been doing asparagus on the grill now for a while, actually in large part thanks to him as inspiration. So check it out. Text data 33777. Y'all would be amazed at the people who who think they can direct the content of my show. I got an email from someone from Macon, and I think I know this person who's complaining uh, that, that I interviewed the author, uh, the author of a cookbook. Good gracious, it's my show. Go get your own show if you don't like it. Uh, I, I, I'm i more than politics. We, you should be more than politics too, you know. It's one of my pet peeves these days is, is people who just aren't well-rounded enough. They're, they're so fixated on politics, they can't do anything else. Uh, thankfully, uh, there was more positive feedback for deviating from the norm today. Seriously, um, I mean, if you live near a Barnes & Noble, they probably have this in stock. And you can order it online for local pickup if you got a Barnes & Noble near you. We, we've got one in Macon. Um, and, or you can get it on Amazon. And I, I checked if you order it, uh, you may be able to actually get it tomorrow if you want to do grilling this weekend. The book is Cereal Griller. It actually is a great book uh, by Matt Moore. And there's some great, I mean, for example, let me just flip through. He's got salads. You know, he actually, this is one thing I didn't get a chance to tell him, and I will move back to other news, but uh, he is the guy who inspired me to grill lettuce. I'm, I'm not joking. You throw it on the grill and get just a little bit of a char on it, and it's perfect. Uh really is. And you can do a great uh, Caesar salad uh, with, romaine that has been grilled now we will move on to other stuff because there is other stuff we got to talk about out there including that pandemic i keep getting notes from people asking me about that pandemic thing we'll get there but and there's tara reed stuff first though i'm going to go to john and mcdonough john welcome to the program hey eric how's it going good how are you i'm doing well doing well trying to be more well-rounded and uh, the grilled lettuce thing sounds like uh um, something you you know could do. You have to do it on a 
uh, uh, plate, though, rather than the than the grid, because I mean, otherwise you might turn it into coleslaw. No, you know, as a matter of fact, you throw it down real fast on the grate and then pull it back up, and it's it, it only it chars the outside of it. It doesn't have time to heat up, uh, and there it just it works. Yeah, but the grilled grilled corn and all that inside the husk and all that other good stuff, good yeah. grilled veggies. But, yes, uh, indeed. Not to, not to uh, not to uh, cut short the grilling. Uh, uh, <laughs> That's where uh, most talk, people but, will uh, thank you for moving to something else. <laughs> I've I've got to get into politics, and I and uh, um, I'm old enough to remember when this actually happened. But I'm hoping that uh, uh, former President Obama, with all due respect, is uh, currently practicing his best Nixonian um, with double peace signs in the air. I'm not a crook sign um, because. Uh, uh, things are looking looking kind of uh, uh, concerning in regards to that old uh, uh, Cronkite phrase. When did the president? What did the president know, and when did he know right. it? Yeah, and and to, to, so people who don't know what John's talking about is Sally Yates. Remember her? She's the one who went to the vice president to say that Mike Flynn was lying. It was Barack Obama who put Mike Flynn on the on the radar. And I suspect it had to do with the fact he really didn't like Flynn. He thought Flynn was disrespectful to him. He ultimately wound up firing Flynn and was nursing a grudge. And and I do kind of wonder if this these FBI people were trying to suck up to Barack Obama. Always possible. And, um, you know, when there's a bunch of, uh, uh, you know, folks that uh, didn't serve, didn't go, and have disrespect for the military – um, want to talk about, um, you know, all those old veterans, those old cranky get off my lawn types. Um, you know, it just, uh, the chickens come home to roost when they, uh, when they, uh, practice to deceive. Did you just quote Jeremiah, right? <laughs> 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 yeah, you're, you're right on that. Now, look, let, let me let you go there. I, I appreciate you, uh, calling in all that because that is one of the curious things in the Mike Flynn story is that according to some of the records, Sally Yates had Mike Flynn on her radar because President Trump or President Obama uh, put Mike Flynn on the radar. He seemed to, you know, one of the things you find about Barack Obama from those who know him is he's somewhat aloof, uh, very nice apparently once once he uh, gets to know you, but but otherwise somewhat aloof, and he also has a bit of a grudge streak. And he didn't like Flynn. He thought Flynn disrespected him. Um, Flynn, of course, thought Obama was out of his league, and he wound up getting fired. So, yeah, there's a there there. You know where there's also there there is it turns out more and more uh, from some of the leaks that are now coming out, uh, the transcripts of some of the behind-the-scenes investigations with Adam Schiff, that some of the people who went on television who were making claims about what they knew about the Trump administration in Russia, under oath and behind closed doors admitted they were basically making it all up. You've got more than one person who went on MSNBC in particular making claims about the incoming Trump administration or while the Trump administration was there or saying sources had told them things and they admitted under oath that they really didn't know. That's one of my problems with the media right now is the inability of the media to be self-reflective. The inability of the American media to recognize that they've been played because they have. 
And there were a bunch of people from the Obama administration who told members of the media what they wanted to hear because they didn't like Trump either. And that's part of the problem here is that it's been very easy to play the the media on anti-Trump stories because the media hates him to begin with. There is a bias there that some of them recognize, many of them do not, and it is easier to get a story into the press from the left than from the right. It's not impossible, by the way. CNN will run a story that is negative to the Democrats, but with a higher bar. Take the Tara Reid story. If Tara Reid came forward with the claims that she made and they were about Donald Trump, the media would have run the story the day it hit the podcast instead of waiting multiple weeks. Uh, when Mike, when Brett Kavanaugh was accused of, by Christine Blasey Ford, the media already had wind of it and was preparing stories to rush out the gate. They weren't waiting for Brett Kavanaugh's side of the story. With Tara Reid, because it was against uh, Joe Biden, the media waited. They wanted to be thorough in ways they never would have been with Donald Trump. Therein lies part of the media double standard. It's how they treat things because the stories about the right already confirm the worldview and biases of the media. They're much more likely to rush them out. But with Democrats, they want to go slow because they want to get all the facts and they want to dot all the I's and cross all the T's first. They don't wait for that with Republicans. There's a real bias there, which again is why it, 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 I have such a hard time trying to figure out what the heck actually happened with Mike Flynn. And I don't really listen to many of the partisans on the right either because they're as aggressive on the left. I, are there any truth tellers left in America in, in the media? I don't know. It's disappointing to have to wonder and ask that question. So apparently we have a cure for the murder hornets, uh, the praying mantis, which eats the murder hornet's face off while the murder hornet is still alive. (laughs) That's an amazing video if you haven't seen it. Welcome, it's Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show. The phone number is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. If you're just tuning in, in the last half hour, I interviewed Matt Moore. Uh, I've got three friends named Matt Moore, and and this Matt Moore is none of those three friends. He is a uh, chef, uh, cookbook author, lives in, I mean, he's a jack-of-all-trades, musician, chef, uh, good bourbon drinker, flies a plane. He's from Georgia, went to UGA. He lives in Nashville. He's got three cookbooks, and his latest is out, Serial Griller. I actually bought a copy of it. I've got all those cookbooks, and and I felt bad that he, he can't go on the media tour he had wanted to go on with this book and had him on the show, and it really is a great cookbook. If you want a good cookbook, and it's on grilling, it's not on it's not on barbecue, and that's one of the things that that I I get frustrated by sometimes is you buy a book on uh, grilling and it's all uh, slow recipes for actually smoking, and it's like, no, I, I want something for the grill, and and this is a cookbook specifically for grilling, high heat, uh, over the flames cooking. Uh, and if you want to get a copy of it, text the word data to three, three, seven, 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 you'll get the Georgia department of public health link as well, but I'll, I've thrown in a link to his latest book, serial griller. He's got three cookbooks and they're all fantastic. A Southern gentleman's kitchen was a gift. That's how I discovered him. He's actually got a fantastic recipe on there in there on how to build a cinder block um, a smoker to do a whole hog and what you do and stay up all night. And one day I really want to do that. I, I went up to a church in Buckhead, uh, not actually Buckhead, Atlanta, but Buckhead, Georgia, which is a tiny town uh, to a church 
I uh, got invited by a listener a while back and uh, Andy and and we stayed up all night, spoke a whole hog about two o'clock in the morning. I wound up heading back home because I was going to have to go get my wife and kids and there had been a UGA game, no hotels anywhere near there. So I had to drive back to Macon, got home at like three 30 in the morning and then had to get up and go get my kids from my in-laws. But it was a, a heck of an experience on how, how you build the uh, cinder blocks. And, and it, it was just, I want to do it sometime in my backyard, but I haven't gotten there yet. I haven't gotten brave enough yet. If you want Matt's book though, cereal griller, uh, it's a great, great cookbook, a lot of cool recipes, not just meat, vegetables, desserts and stuff on do it all on the grill text the word data to 33777. Now, I got to move on to actual news of the day. Um, Ahmad Arbery, I have mentioned the McMichaels have been jailed. So Greg McMichaels is, he works for the Braves. He was a Braves pitcher. And there is another Greg McMichaels who listens to this program who is not the Braves pitcher. And I imagine that the Braves uh, pitcher is now the head of alumni for the Braves. I, I, I imagine if people could track him down, they could do the same thing. This other Greg McMichael who listens to this program is from Brunswick, though, this Greg McMichael. He emailed me and said he is getting death threats and harassment that his wife and him, his phone number was in the phone book. Uh, it was public, at least. I don't know if the phone books even exist anymore, but it was certainly public. And they've had to turn their phone off because he's getting overwhelmed with threats. And it, it just it's sad that people are reacting that way. At least the actual Gregory McMichael and his son are in jail now. Now, who is out of jail? Shelly Luther. Shelly Luther is the hair salon owner in Dallas, Texas. And, you know, I, I want to make a point again that some of you are you get frustrated with me saying, but we're in a global pandemic and no one in our lifetime has dealt with a global pandemic like this. I saw Britt Hume last night tweet that in the flu outbreak of 1958, we lost 75,000 people. I don't remember the world shutting down. Well, yes, he's right. But that was 75,000 people died in 365 days. We're 10 weeks in and have 75,000 people dead. Uh, I assure you, if 75,000 people were dead within 10 weeks of that flu outbreak in 1957-58, we would have shut the whole country down and kept people at home just like now. Uh, you can distinguish between these things. I, I don't understand the people so dogmatically convinced that uh, we should have never stayed inside when you see more people dead from this than the worst flu outbreak and, uh, since the Spanish flu outbreak. The, the 1957-58 flu outbreak was the worst flu pandemic globally since the Spanish flu outbreak of 1918 and 75,000 total Americans died in a year. We've got 75,000 dead Americans in 10 weeks and the best people can do is deny that it's 75,000. Okay. Is it 50,000 in 10 weeks? Well, what exactly is your number and what's your data source? Cause I've got data for mine. And that that's the other thing that, that frustrates me on the COVID-19 situation is the number of people who can't back themselves up with data, which reminds me, let me do this. We'll get back to Shelly Luther. Cause this is, this is, uh, this is stuck in my crawl. This, this makes me mad. I have had, and listen, don't hear me saying I'm mad at you people, at y'all, I guess. Y'all sounds more loving, doesn't it? Don't hear me and interpret me as saying I'm mad at y'all because I'm not. I'm frustrated with some of you because you should know better, but I, I, I'm, I'm not mad at y'all. But I've gotten a bunch of people who have sent me links to that pandemic video. 
the pandemic video is an interview and it was it is very slickly produced i mentioned it the other day uh it is so well produced it is a a well designed it's so well designed frankly that it allows people to look uh it allows people to think this must be legit and that's part of the problem is that it is not legit and so much of it is made up and nonsensical, but it looks real. It, it looks cinematic. And so people are buying into it because someone really went through trouble. I, I want to read you some of this. In, in, if you don't know what I'm talking about, Plandemic is largely an interview with Judy Mikovits. She is uh, an anti-vaccine activist, although she says she's not an anti-vaccine activist. She is. And she gives this wild tale of a government conspiracy to create the coronavirus. And Fauci, Dr. Fauci, is the puppet master behind it. And it's got all sorts of problems. Uh, Christy Alley has come out and linked to it. Darren Knight has linked to it. Tito Ortez from MMA and Alex Reed have linked to it. Uh, it, it just took off. Uh, Mikovitz's book, Plague of Corruption, has become number one on Amazon for a time. And it's just, it, it's so scammy and disgusting and I'm, I'm horrified that people are buying into this pandemic thing. Let me read you some of the, the information here about uh, Mikovits, who is the star of this. In 2009, Mikovits, the research director at Nevada's Whitmore-Peterson Institute for Neuroimmune Disease, a job she picked up after a stint bartending in a yacht club, published a paper in Science claiming that chronic fatigue syndrome was caused by the retrovirus XMRV. The claim offered hope for sufferers of chronic fatigue syndrome, the cause of which remains unclear. But the research fell apart. Science wound up retracting the article in 2011, and scientists now believe Mikovits's supposed findings were just the results of contamination in her lab. What she thought she had found was actually contamination of samples, says Dr. Ivan Aransky, a co-founder of science research blog Retraction Watch. She found that there was a virus present in samples taken from mice with chronic fatigue syndrome. It happens though that the virus just happened to be there. It didn't prove anything. No one could replicate the research. That's basics of science. That's why so many of you are skeptical of global warming is you can't replicate the experiments. They don't give you the data. Well, no one could replicate this. Instead of accepting the retraction, Mikovits began to portray it as proof the medical establishment was engaged in a conspiracy against her. In Plandemic, she was, well, she was arrested on a criminal charge. In Plandemic, her November 2011 arrest is portrayed as a punishment for the powers that be. There was SWAT team footage. You will see if you watch Plandemic, it's hard to find now. YouTube and Facebook took it down. But there's, you see the SWAT team uh, arresting Mikovits, except that's a problem. Um, that SWAT footage isn't actually an arrest of Mikovits or a raid on her house. Uh, in fact, the company that filmed that news footage has denounced Plandemic, saying that the Plandemic uh, documentary didn't have their permission to even show that. Mikovits was charged with theft after notebooks and other materials disappeared from the Whitmore-Peterson Institute when she left. The charges were dropped because the Institute's backer was charged with making illegal contributions to a federal official, and the prosecutor complained that if they pursued the case, that uh, they would be undermined with witness issues. 
Now, the retraction, the, her paper was retracted. She was arrested. And now she claims the pandemic that she isn't against vaccines, but she's co-authored two books with anti-vaccine blogger Ken Hitchin-Lively. And Robert Kennedy Jr., that nutter, is a big promoter of the conspiracy theory that vaccines cause autism and, and has promoted her and written the foreword to the book. Well, after her arrest, Mikovitz started a years-long feud with Anthony Fauci. Now, it was one-sided. He's never actually um, responded except one time. Uh, and 2014, she claimed Fauci threatened to have her arrested if she tried to participate in a National Institutes of Health study to validate her retracted study on chronic fatigue syndrome. There's actually no evidence of that. Uh, she claims Fauci berated her in 1984 in an attempt to steal HIV research. There's, there's no proof of that. Uh, she goes a step further and claims the coronavirus was cooked up in collusion between the United States government labs and Chinese researchers. There's actually no evidence of that. Uh, a health and human services spokesman who represents Fauci declined to comment. In 2018, the only time Fauci ever addressed Mikovits' claims, it was to the, the uh, fact-checking website Snopes. He denied her allegation, says he's never found the email he supposedly sent, and he doesn't know what she's talking about. But then there are other claims as well. She claims, for example, AIDS activist and playwright Larry Kramer called Fauci the Bernie Madoff of science. Nobody can find that quote, and Kramer and Fauci are friends. She claims uh, Ebola couldn't infect human cells until we took them into laboratories and taught them. She actually talks about how she, this is reading from this article, Mikovits claims she taught Ebola cells in a U.S. laboratory at Fort Detrick how to infect human cells in 1999, weaponizing the disease against humans. Not only is there no evidence she ever worked there, but the Ebola outbreaks have been happening since 1976 in, in human infections, well before she claims that could have happened. And then, of course, she goes on to say wearing a mask activates the virus. You get sick from your own reactivated coronavirus expressions. I don't even know what the hell a coronavirus expression is, but that's what she claims. Now, the guy who produced the video, uh, somebody Willis, he's produced uh, one video with Marianne Williamson. You know, Marianne Williamson. He's done another one on psychedelic drugs. Uh, there's another one, Be Brave, the true story of Daniel Northcott. He, he uh, posits that the Northcott contracted leukemia because he stole a cursed bone from a Mayan gravesite. Yeah. Um, also, by the way, you remember Dan Erickson? Dan Erickson is the doctor who put the video on YouTube that got taken down where he basically said, uh, we need to reopen. This virus is way more widespread. A, a bunch of you sent me that too. And Dan Erickson and his partner, Masahi, I, I think his last name is, they're featured in this pandemic video and, and their, their video is taken from it. They've denounced it and said that this is all bunk science and, and uh, that it's, it's against not only the scientific consensus, but fact. And, and, and the reason I go through this is because I'm stunned by how many people saw this video and started sending it to me to ask what I thought of it and had I seen it. And, and what I'm learning is there are a bunch of people who go online and seek out information that corroborates everything they already believed and they find it. They're like, this is truth. Nobody has discernment anymore. It, it really, you know, let, let me, let me just clue everybody in here. Truth is not that which confirms what you already believed. 
And that's what's happening with this video is people are looking at it. They believed all this stuff already. They believe the anti-vaccine stuff. They believe it was a government conspiracy. They believed Anthony Fauci is the puppet master of the world with Bill Gates or what have you. And, and that's what this video portrays. And it must be true. It, it confirms everything I already believe. That's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. And yet so many people out there. So please don't send me any more links to plan links to pandemic. It is it's it's garbage. Uh, this woman has been thoroughly discredited. I mean, even the people who are cited in the video are saying, no, we didn't want to be a part of this video. Uh, take us out. Leave us out of this. She's not telling you accurate stuff. But, hey, it confirms people's prior beliefs. It, it, it's, it's just like, you know, the left and the right both do this. You just find the people who tell you what you want to hear, and, and those are the truth tellers as opposed to the people actually telling you the truth. So I got the I got a passed an Associated Press article that has hit the wires. Uh, it is found in the Athens Banner Herald. Many governors across the United States are disregarding or creatively interpreting White House guidelines for safely easing restrictions and letting businesses reopen. Amid the coronavirus pandemic, an Associated Press analysis found the AP determined that 17 states did not meet a key benchmark set by the White House for loosening up a 14-day downward trajectory in new cases or positive test rates. And yet many of the those have begun to reopen or are about to, including Alabama, Kentucky, Maine, Mississippi, Missouri, Nebraska, Ohio, Oklahoma, Tennessee, and Utah. Because of the broad way in which the non-binding guidelines are written, other states, including Georgia, have technically managed to meet the criteria and reopen despite not seeing a steady decline in cases and deaths. Wait a second. What? 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 Other states, including Georgia, have technically managed to meet the criteria and reopen. How can this be? I was told Georgia did not meet the criteria to reopen. How can this be? Because despite the media outrage, Despite the hysteria, despite even the president of the United States saying he disagreed, it turns out (gasps) Georgia met the criteria to reopen. You mean the media was, was wrong? The online outrage machine was wrong? Brian Kemp, blood on your hands, hashtag on Twitter was wrong? What? Where do we stand today? Let me give you the audit. Let me pull up the data. If you text data to 33777, you'll get a link to Matt Moore's new book, Serial Killer, but you'll also get this data that I'm looking at right now. The Georgia Department of Public Health Daily Status Report, overall COVID-19 status, 227,477 total tests given, 31,636 confirmed cases, 5,877 hospitalizations, 1,351 deaths. Those are total, not today. That's total overall, the entire time, the 10-week period. Something that freaks people out. They they, they hear, what, we've got 31,000 people? No. There are maybe 5,000 people in Georgia who have the virus right now. But there have been a total of 31,000. So 
Where are the numbers? Well, let, let's go. The seven-day tracking average begins now on April 24th. So 785 cases on April 24th. On the 25th, 384. On the 26th, 288. On the 27th, 880. Now, why the big jump? Gainesville. The poultry outbreak in Gainesville. And then the next day, April 28th, 280, or I'm sorry, 820. On April 29th, it was 624. On April 30th, 542. On May 1st, 550. I'm, I'm logging this. There's a method of my madness here. 1030 a.m. What is today? May 8th. All right. May 2nd, 233. May 3rd, 155. May 4th. 373. Why the jump? Well, because the weekend, you know, the, the second and the third are down. You can figure out where the weekend is on this chart by seeing the decline in tests. May 5th, 175. May 6th, 64. May 7th, 20 cases. Now, let me do again what I've been doing to try to set this perspective for you. You know, there's a delay in tests. The tests come back. When I started doing this on the radio on May 4th, looking at May 1st, we had 128 cases that morning. By the time my show went off the air on May 4th, they had 144 cases on May 1st. By the time the day was concluded on May 4th, there were 158. On May 5th, the day started with 179 and ended with 214. On the 6th, it started with 430 and ended with 523. And today we're up to 550. Now, why do I go through this? Because I want you to understand the metric. There are those who are attacking the governor and uh, Dr. Toomey saying they're giving you too much information. What I'm trying to do is to show you they're giving you real-time information as the tests come in, so the numbers update all the time, which is why you should bookmark that website and go back. Don't keep texting data. I pay for that unless you're going to subscribe to my Substack note and, and help me out. Uh, text the word data to 33777. Get that link and just bookmark it and start going there every day and, and look at the metric. But what you'll see is there is still a steady decline in the number of daily cases in Georgia. I, I shouldn't dwell, perhaps, but I, I think it's worth dwelling. I, I do think it is. Uh, the Associated Press report is out. Remember all of the belly aching about Georgia reopening. Remember all of the people on TV telling us Georgia didn't meet the so-called gating criteria. Remember all of the, the, the Democrats, including Stacey Abrams who were fretful and fearful, and, and this is terrible. Remember all of that. And now the Associated Press has come out and said in a, in a detailed review of the criteria in the states, Georgia is actually one of the few states that met the criteria to reopen. You didn't hear that at the time, and, and that's not going to get amplified. Uh, the Stacey Abrams uh, videos on Twitter blasting the governor for reopening will get way more health, or will get way more public attention on, on public health channels than this story from the Associated Press. The people who have the hashtag Brian Kemp has blood on his hands will pay no attention to it. And now we know from the Associated Press of all places, one of the outlets that was blasting the governor for reopening. I wonder if the AJC editorials that were blasting the governor say we didn't meet the criteria. Well, will they come out with it? See, they won't. What will happen is they'll say, well, maybe technically, but they were such loosey-goosey things anyway. We needed something better. No one will ever apologize for blasting the governor in the way they did. Speaking of Abrams, 
I, I ran the numbers, and I find this fascinating. Uh, Stacey Abrams represented a state house district in Georgia of 48,980 people. She was in a, a part-time job as a state legislator representing 48,980 highly liberal people in a district drawn for a Democrat to win. Please compare and contrast that to Keisha Lance Bottoms, the mayor of Atlanta, who you may or may not like. I don't care. The relevant point is she's the chief executive officer of a city of 500,000 very diverse people and presides over the world's busiest airport. Which of these two is more qualified to be vice president of the United States? You want your laugh for the day? Listen to this from Stacey Abrams. So first of all, the decision of who his vice president will be is solely the decision of Vice President Biden. He has done the job and he knows what he's looking for. And he has a smart team that will choose and help him select from among a number of credible, qualified candidates. And I want to push back. I haven't been pitching myself, which has been a mischaracterization, I think, because I answer questions honestly. I've been getting this question for 14 months, since March of 2019. Mm -hmm. I've repeatedly received the question, and I'm honored that people would put me into the category and think that that was a question to ask. Uh, no, um, no, um, no. Stacy, where's this, um, um, Greg Bluestein? Where are you? There was a Gre- Greg Bluestein. Yes, yes, yes. Um, Stacy Abrams is now trying to burnish her, her credentials for foreign policy. No potential Democratic nominee for vice president has jockeyed more publicly for the position than Stacey Abrams. And now the former Georgia legislator is trying to shore up one of her biggest perceived weaknesses, foreign policy. She published an article in a trade journal this month laying out her foreign policy vision. Her allies and aides are emphasizing her overseas work. Her most recent book to be released in June includes a sharp focus on the threat of authoritarianism around the globe. Now, (laughs) let me read you. This is the paragraph that actually made me fall out laughing. Abrams is making her direct case to be vice president in all manner of outlets, daytime talk shows, late night TV talk shows, podcasts, magazines, national outlets, and even hyper-local publications. What is this hyper-local publication? The Atlanta Voice. Hyper-local publication. Y'all, Abrams is campaigning to be vice president, and it has become so unseemly. The vice president of the United States' own staff are blasting her on background to the New York Times. She has overplayed her hand on this. You know, I've mentioned before, I interviewed everybody running for governor in 2018, Democrat and Republican. Uh, I gave them an hour of my radio show to sit down, and and they were, I, I called it probative, not combative. I didn't want to push. I didn't want to argue. I didn't want to make them defensive, particularly the Democrats, Stacey Evans and Stacey Abrams. Uh, and, and Evans seemed way more uncomfortable than Abrams. But I wanted them to feel comfortable. I wanted them to feel like they were going to get a fair hearing. I just wanted to find out who they were. Why were they running? What did they care about? What was their issue? Uh, how did they see the world? It wasn't for me to push back on them. I wanted them to reveal themselves to the audience. And Abrams came in and was the best interview. 
she and Brian Kemp actually uh, on the Republican side, Kemp, I thought, did give the best interview. I'm not saying that because he won. I really do mean it. He came in. He he was the very first person to sign up for it. It's like, I'll do it. He came in and he was just he laid back in the chair. He was relaxed. Uh, it, you could tell that this is a man who, if he le- if he lost, would go home that night and have a good night's sleep. And Abrams came in, and she knew she and Casey Cagle shared a number of positions, particularly on taxation issues, and she answered the questions better than the sitting lieutenant governor of the state. And no disrespect intended to lieutenant governor. She was just sharp. She impressed me. She was self-deprecating. She was funny. She'd make jokes about herself. She had a level of humility, and she has none of that now. There is no humility right now. And she's hurt herself. I've used several times, there's no reason to rehash it, but I've used on this program several times the Shakespeare in Love analogy of of that movie was the first time anyone aggressively campaigned for a Best Picture Oscar, Miramax did, and it wound up winning, beating Saving Private Ryan to this day. Uh, It is uh, in regular surveys of Academy voters, it is listed as as the biggest regret of the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts and Sciences that 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 beat Saving Private Ryan. If they could have a do-over in 2015, they had a survey. If they could have a do-over, they would not have given it to uh, Shakespeare in Love. They would have given it to Saving Private Ryan. Frankly, I think if the Academy Awards wanted to do something, they should go back through in retrospective and, and give awards to the movies that got left by the wayside that actually wound up holding up better than the ones who got the award. And that's the perfect one. No one remembers Shakespeare in love, but everyone still watches saving private Ryan. One of the greatest war movies ever made. Abrams is going to be like that. If she's not careful, the Democrats are going to regret. They ever paid her that much attention. She needs to go back to showing some humility. It is a humility. She does not now at this moment possess. It seems and I know she's got it. I, I've I've seen her. I, I've interviewed her. She really was. I, I mean, y'all, I've interviewed world leaders, and I I don't say that lightly. I have interviewed world leaders. I, I have interviewed uh, the ambassador to the United Nations. I've interviewed the vice president of the United States. I, I've interviewed senators. I've interviewed congressmen. I've interviewed multiple governors. I've interviewed CEOs of Fortune 500 companies. I've interviewed billionaires. Stacey Abrams was one of the best. She she was a fantastic interview. I, I genuinely like spending an hour on stage with her where we may not have agreed on anything, but she was a, a funny person to talk to. She was humorous and self-deprecating, and I like that in a politician. I don't care what party you're in. If you lack the ability to crack a joke on yourself, you are someone who's not worth electing. And I know some Republicans and some Democrats alike who have no sense of humor about themselves, cannot laugh about themselves, uh, take themselves very, very seriously. There is Life is too short to invest in someone with a stick up their butt. And uh, Abrams, on that stage with me, was witty and self-deprecating and humorous about herself and has lost that on the national stage and needs to get it back if she's going to do anything. She's doing damage to herself. And you get around to 2022, she's done this entire campaign to be vice president. She wants to run for governor again against Brian Kemp. That's what she really wants. She really does feel like she was robbed. And the Democrats by 2022 are going to think, you know what? We might as well give it to someone else now. It is, it's just, it's amazing. Uh, I, I, and listen, I realize, in fact, I'm, I'm, I'm seeing emails come through from some of you who can't believe I would say nice things about Abrams. I'm telling y'all, it is refreshing to be able to interview someone, I, I know, for example, for example, I have interviewed, and I'm, I'm not going to say who, 
and you're just going to have to give me a pass on that because I do like him and we're friends. But I interviewed a member of the United States Senate one time, and it was a terrible interview, not because I didn't know what I was doing and not because he didn't know his answers, but he couldn't even laugh, couldn't laugh at himself. And some of the stuff he said, I I, I would pick at just because the way he said, it, no humor at all. And it was so deeply awkward and painful. Um, I'll tell you someone who's actually a very funny person to interview is Paul Ryan, uh, the former Speaker of the House. Uh, I've interviewed him before by phone and his kids, He's a, he loves to bow hunt and his kids wanted him to take the bow hunting and he's having to be dad and uncle while also trying to do this interview. It's very, very funny. Uh, I'll tell you another person who's a funny person to interview is Donald Trump. Uh, I I interviewed Donald Trump for an hour and a half one time, and he is a deeply funny person. He is a very very funny person. Uh, he he. If you can get him off, Donald Trump is someone who, when you interview the president of the United States, and this by the way also happens. So so he's called me a couple times. Haven't called me in a while, but he's called me before. And what typically happens when he calls, you get a you get a phone call. And at the time it, it was Madeline, I, I forget, is it Mary? I can't remember his new assistant's name, also an M. But anyway, so Madeline called and says, is this Eric Erickson? Yes, it is. This is Madeline with the president. Please hold for the president of the United States. And he comes on the line here. You, you may have to wait a minute or so. He comes on the line. And typically what will happen is he will, he just kind of, he, he talks. And at the end of the call, you get a couple of, you get maybe 30 seconds to chime in, at least the couple, first couple of times he called. And finally, he was comfortable. I mean, we we didn't really care for each other. I didn't support him in 2016. He finally got comfortable with me calling enough that we could chat. He is a really funny person. Um, Now, I I will never reveal the conversations I have with the president of the United States, but he is a deeply, deeply funny person. And you get him off. If you can distract him just enough from the point he wants to make, he'll continue the conversation with that, but but he'll become less guarded and he'll say deeply funny things. I, I, I went up to Trump Tower one time to interview him. And this is before he was president. He had just gotten his 757. And I had read the article about this. I, I like airplanes. One day I want to I want a net jet subscription so I don't have to fly commercial. Uh, and we're, we're lamenting um, commercial airlines. And he had just he'd had the 727 for a while. He's now got the 757. He's telling me all about it. He wants me to, to, to get in the car with him and go to LaGuardia then and there to tour his 757, which I couldn't do. My boss was horrified that that I would even think of doing something like that. But we're there for this conversation. And he just starts telling us the man has known everyone. And he has deeply funny stories uh, about all of these people. And, and once you let him let his guard down, I mean, he he is very, very good assessment of other people. Uh, and it's just it's, it's very funny to hear those stories. And I like when I interview people and that sort of stuff comes out of them because so many people can be so guarded. One of the number one things you have to do when you're interviewing someone to really get a good interview is to try to build a level of rapport and trust with them so they can let their guard down just a little bit. Like, for example, uh, Nikki Haley was in Atlanta at the Jewish Book Festival, and she and I have been friends for a decade, and she asked me to interview her. And several of the people on her staff came up afterwards. And yeah, I realize I'm bragging about myself and I don't mean to. It's just to make a point um, that that they wished I could go on the campaign trail with her for this book tour to do the interview because she was very comfortable with me because we've known each other for a decade. Uh, I got a plan on the other side of this door. It's the only plan I've never managed to kill. She and her husband, when I was sick in the hospital a couple of years ago, they sent me this plant and and she actually put the note that um, the one thing you won't be able to kill. <laughs> 
she knows my gardening skills and this plant is still thriving and, and has has grown and and if you can get someone comfortable you can do that and, and that was the thing with Stacey Abrams is, is she came into this interview with me she is she it was in a setting with conservatives at a conservative radio station talking to a known conservative commodity uh, about issues on which she knew I disagreed and she could still crack jokes on herself and was not uptight. And I appreciated that. And that's not who you're seeing on the national stage now. She's trying too hard. And who's ever advising her should advise her not to try that hard. I don't think she has a shot at being the vice presidential nominee at this point. I think she's done damage to herself. And the best thing she could do right now is to calm down and and go back under the radar a little bit and not be as overexposed as she is right now. If there's a corollary to this, it's the president and his press conferences. No disrespect intended to the president, but he overexposed himself in the press conferences. People got tired of it. I hate to say there's a little bit of the need for monarchy in all of this because people will take it the wrong way. But one of the things that dazzles when it comes to the Queen of England is that you may see her image on a coin, but you do not see her every day. When she addressed the nation a few weeks ago of of, of Great Britain and and her commonwealth, uh, it it was a national address, something that she has only done five times. She's the longest-serving British monarch and has only publicly addressed the nation five times like that. And it was it was the it was impressive that she did it and people paid attention because it's so rare to come into contact like that with her. And when the president is on stage doing these press conferences every single day, people become too familiar with him. There, there's no magic and mystery there anymore. There's some level of magic and mystery you have to maintain in politics. And and you can be the 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 person who is very aloof, but if you come down to earth and seem reasonable and likable but you limit your exposure to people, it makes it more meaningful. It's it's not a coincidence that the president's polling started going down. The more he did these constant daily press conferences, people got too familiar with him. They knew what he was going to say before he said it. They didn't have to tune in anymore, and those who did got bored with it, and that affected his polling. You can't be overexposed as a politician. You can call in if you want to be a part of the program, 877-973-7425. If you want to order um, Matt Moore's new book, Serial Griller, he stopped by in the first hour. Text the word DATA to 33777. You'll get the link to the Georgia Department of Public Health so you can see the numbers for yourself. But there's also an Amazon link to his book. Uh, It it really is a great cookbook for grilling. At some point, I need to to put out a list of some of my favorite uh, cookbooks. He's actually... Two of my favorite cookbooks are his. Um, I haven't cooked enough through this one to say it's one of my favorites. It's got some great recipes in it. Uh, but his, um, his, his, the South's Best Butts and the Southern Gentleman's Cookbook are two of his, and they're great cookbooks by him. I really do like them a lot. Um, I, I, I want to spend a moment. I try to talk about anniversaries on occasion, and there's a big one today. The 75th anniversary of VE Day, Victory in Europe Day. It was not supposed to be today. It was supposed to be the 10th. The reason it was supposed to be delayed 48 hours because the Soviets wanted a celebration in Berlin. But their celebration in Berlin, word began leaking out. 
And people started spreading around by word of mouth that the Nazis had surrendered. And so the Associated Press's guy in Paris wrote a wire report announcing a victory in Europe. The Nazis had officially surrendered and word got out and it is um, it 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 spread around the world quickly. People took to the streets celebrating in New York City. Uh, the war was still going on. There was still the problem of the Japanese, but the, and the war was going on and things were still rationed. And the, um, the, the commissioner of rationing in New York lamented people throwing paper out their windows, uh, homemade confetti, aluminum foil and scraps going out people's windows. It, it was, it was amazing. The world rallied. To beat the Nazis and then the Japanese. I I kind of worry that there we as a nation are slowly abdicating our role in the world. Some of you want us to, it's too cost costly, it's none of our business. And I'm in the camp that bad things happen when we seed our role on the world stage. As I see the Chinese embedding themselves in countries around the world and in um, trying to, to in debt countries to China. Uh, I, I think there is a communist menace still out there that needs to be fought. But then I'm reminded that, you know, the United States did not want to be involved in World War II. We did not want to be dragged in, and we wound up being dragged in. Uh, the Japanese, as, as the, the J- Japanese admiral said, awoke a sleeping giant. I don't know that we have what it takes now as that we did then. I hope we do. But it is worth celebrating the free world rose up and fought the Nazis and then entered into a Cold War with the communists. But we were willing to do what needed to be done to put the bad guys down and the horrors we discovered along the way and thereafter still haunt us. But, man, what a victory. It is, it's worth celebrating today. For 75 years ago today, the Nazis surrendered and we had peace in Europe. Hello and welcome to the third hour of the Eric Erickson Show, where I will even take your phone calls at 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. If you were here in the last hour, well, towards the end of the last hour, I mentioned that today is VE Day, uh, 75 years ago. Uh, the Nazis surrendered. They wanted to actually wait until the 10th because they wanted the Soviets to be able to have their own celebration before the world was made known. They wanted to dispatch uh, some of the Nazis as well. Word we leaked out, and, and uh, this became the day. It became a big celebration. And uh, before I move on to other topics, David wanted to talk about it from Kennesaw, so I wanted to go on and get him on. David, welcome. Thanks, Eric. Um, I just wanted to say how over the last many several years 10 20 years i guess my perspective on uh, world war ii has changed somewhat and i share your reformed faith and and part of that of course is human uh, total depravity <laughs> depravity and yeah. in one sense of course ve day is a great victory and a, a, a certainly a, a marking and a transition but i guess my older perspective was hey we beat those guys and that's over and done with um, but in a sense, you know, I've looked a little bit more at the Nuremberg trials and how so many of the people in Germany were in some ways involved with that. And they really didn't have the stomach to dig deep and 
and uh, prosecute people on a you know large level. And and I've told, of course, I told your screener that Rod Serling, uh, who wrote all the Twilight Zone, or was involved with that, he was a soldier in World War II and saw and experienced those Nuremberg trials and and saw a future that you know that we have to work hard to avoid rather than hey we we got it done we're and, yeah. and you may have known a little bit about Operation Paperclip where we actually I mean life was complicated then because we were fighting the Russians we didn't want the Russians to beat us but we took some people who were involved in some very questionable things into our society and yeah. you you know you may know a little bit about that but so yeah, anyway it's and- just one of those things Go ahead. It's what is the what is the the, the Reagan quote that, that we're always one generation away from um, not being free from our freedom collapsing, and it, it really is not a thing where we beat them so much as well. A lot of those people were still there and reabsorbed into society, and we're dealing with a, a totally depraved, fallen world, and and have to keep up our vigilance. And it really does seem like so many people uh, want to let their guard down over time. Right. And, and of course, today you've got um, Black Mirror as maybe a uh, uh, sort of the, the twilight zone of yeah. <laughs> today. Uh, and, and I heard recently that the, uh, the writer of that show, he's not sure society's ready for more seasons because we're, you know, what we're experiencing right now. Right. Yeah. I, I, you know, I'm glad you said that on. because I had that in my show notes the other day and I didn't get to it oh. that for those of you who aren't familiar with the black, black mirror series on Netflix, it's a dystopian show. It very much like the twilight zone and the writers like, I, I don't know that we're, we need more of this. <laughs> so I appreciate it, but we, yeah, we do need to be vigilant and, uh, and, and of course everything going on now is, uh, yeah. Man, and and, and into the election. Listen, David, thanks very much for the phone call. I appreciate it. So I've got to do a, a, this is irrelevant to this conversation, actually. I got to do a, a, I got asked to do, and I don't have to, but I volunteered to do it. Uh, So I went to Mercer University in Macon and went to the law school there, graduated in the year 2000, and got asked by Kathy Cox, uh, the former Secretary of State, uh, who is now the the dean at the uh, law school at Mercer. If I would do something, just a short little video for the graduating class of 2020, they've asked a number of, of alumni to do it. And I thought, sure. And I started thinking about it. What do I want to, I, I obviously don't want to do something long. I don't want to be camera ham for them. I do something a little more than graduate. Congratulations. But I started thinking, you know, I graduated in 2000 and went on my honeymoon and got married in October of that year, went on my honeymoon and actually found out I had passed the bar exam while I was on my honeymoon. And came home to the 2000 election as I was beginning my law practice, which was the first election in living memory where uh, someone became president, losing the popular vote and winning the Electoral College. And then as I started my law practice and became comfortable being a lawyer and being in depositions and stuff, uh, was in my uh, office one morning preparing for a big deposition it was it was the biggest deposition thus far that I had done in my career I was going to get to ask questions I was preparing for it it was a, a it was a condemnation case in Wilkinson County Georgia and the, one of the big sticking points was the valuation of the land we were taking which is always a big sticking case we got Kalen property and headed down to the break room uh to to grab a file that was in there and happened to see a plane fly into the World Trade Center and was fixated. 
And, you know, honestly, so I was a lawyer until 2006 or in the law practice until 2005. But it was that moment that day where I kind of knew this wasn't going to be for me. And and it, it went back to I had a legal writing professor, Adam Milani, he, who has since subsequently passed away. Um, but he told the story when we were in law school. He was a lawyer in Oklahoma City on the day the Murrah Federal Building uh, was blown up. And he remembers that a lawyer came in from out of town. There were people from his law office who were inside the courthouse uh, when Timothy McVeigh blew it up, people who never came back. And the lawyer from out of town had flown in for a deposition in a banking case and demanded that the deposition go forward. And and he and Adam Milani said he knew he was not going to stay a lawyer forever because he didn't want to be in a profession with people like that who who, uh, were so into it that they lost the humanity around them. And I just assumed that day that the deposition would be canceled, and yet the lawyers insisted that we do the deposition. And, and everyone in my office was fixated. War was upon us. But I had to do that during deposition. That didn't even matter. And I thought, you know what? I understand what Adam Milani is talking about. And I, I I never set out to be a lawyer to begin with, if I'm honest about it. I was working for Saxby Champlis at the time uh, in, in 1997, and he was preparing. He knew he would be headed to the Senate one day, and he told me that uh, a law degree was like an MBA for politics. And I wanted to go to Washington. I wanted to be in politics. And, you know, I, I, I never moved to Washington. I took a job in Washington where I'd fly back and forth. Uh, every week for a year and, and gave that up. It was exhausting and started a, a help start red state, a political website. Now do politics in a way I don't regret my, I'm still paying on my law school. I think I've got another 13 years on my law school loans. I had to float the full ride uh, to go to Mercer, uh, which was fine with me. I got a great education there and law school doesn't actually teach you the law. It teaches you how to think and research, but I did, I didn't want to get stuck with it. I, I didn't want to do it, but nine 11 changed so much. And I guess that's what I want to tell the, the, the class of 2020 that 20 years ago, I graduated from law school and you, you couldn't see nine 11 coming. You couldn't see the, uh, election coming in the way it was disrupted. You couldn't see the political disruption. You couldn't see the geopolitical disruption. Uh, and you've got all these plans and the world loves to disrupt your plans. And the only thing you can do as a person is to be flexible enough to navigate through a life of disruption and try to leave it better than you found it. And particularly for those of you who have a skill set, whether you're a doctor or, or a lawyer, regardless of what your skill set is, whether you're a professional or not, whether you have a blue collar job, whether you're a, a grocery store clerk, whatever, uh, your life gets more meaning by giving meaning to other people than by trying to do something for yourself. A generosity of spirit goes a long way. I, I guess I, I got to figure out a way to, to tell them that. Uh, Greetings from the class of 2000. Congratulations on your graduation in 2020. You guys didn't see a global pandemic coming any more than my class saw a a global war of terror coming. You can't figure out your way through life because you can't plan for the uncertainty of life. But what you can plan for is to always remember there are going to be those who are left behind but for you and that your job is to elevate as many people as you can to seek the welfare of your community where you're going to find your welfare and try to leave it better off than you found it along the way. And if you can do that, 
you'll have done something meaningful in life other than file papers and take depositions and argue before a black-robed judge. That would be it, I suppose. And I guess that there's a lesson for all of us there as well, that our job should be to leave our community better off than we find it. And so often we get fixated in the political struggle of the day in Washington, D.C. What is the latest on this on the virus? What is the latest on Tara Reid? What is the latest on Donald Trump? What does the latest polls say? What is the Senate? Is the Senate at stake? Is the House at stake? Can my guy win? Will my guy lose? And you forget the fight around you in your community. You know, that I think is probably the most troubling thing is there are a lot of people, cultural Christians and, and atheists alike on the left and the right, who uh, politics has really become people's religion. People look at their means of salvation as participating in the political process. And and the older I get, the more I realize that that isn't so. And I used to be that guy. I used to be so wrapped up in politics and I still am wrapped up in politics. But this is why, like, for example, this morning, I'd like to have Matt Moore on uh, to be more well-rounded, to be able to focus on stuff other than just politics. There are, and you know the people I'm talking about, you know them and you may be that person. There is more to life than politics. There's just so much more than politics. It's not a religion. It's not a means to salvation. And if you really want to improve the political landscape in Washington, start with the political landscape in your own backyard. How many of you have ever been to a city council meeting? Or a school board meeting. You all pay taxes for your local school board. Even if your kids like mine go to a private school, you're still paying taxes. How many of you have participated in a local election? How many of you get involved with those candidates and get to know those candidates? How many of you are involved with a local nonprofit? Not everyone is comfortable. You know, I, honest to goodness, I'll tell you, I am not comfortable serving a food line. I'm not. I don't like people. I don't like being in crowds. It, it, it makes me deeply uncomfortable. It takes me too far outside my comfort zone, so I write checks. I'll help the food bank. I'd prefer not to work the line, although I feel like one day I'm going to have to take my kids uh, and have them so that they are exposed to a side of humanity that they can too easily forget exists. I'm going to have to force myself to do it to be able to get my kids. I got a, a buddy of mine in town. He may be listening right now who takes his kids uh, down to the local food bank and soup kitchen and they help feed the homeless just so his kids can be reminded that such people do exist and they're real people created in the image of God, just like you and me. Sometimes you got to prioritize that, but we get so focused on our lives and what we do for a living. We get focused on politics. We, we forget all of that and we can't really forget all of that. That is why, and yes, here's my transition to Shelley Luther. That is why I'm so torn on the Shelley Luther situation. See, it's so easy for some people that she should listen to the local officials and keep her business shut down. This is the hair salon in Texas where she went to jail because she reopened. A week before she was allowed to, she reopened. Her, she had no money. Her patrons of her, her salon did not take care of her while she was out of business. Many of them could not. Some of them could and didn't. 
So she reopened and she was uh, fined. She refused to pay the fine and she refused to, uh, to close again. She stayed open, so they hauled her off to jail. And for some people, often the people who think it's perfectly fine for illegal immigrants to cross the border to come here to take care of their kids, they were mad as hell that she reopened. It's a global pandemic. you got to stay home, woman. And the people who often think that there's no justification for an illegal alien to, to cross the border and come here to take care of their kids, well, she's got to take care of her kids. Perfectly fine for her to reopen in the global pandemic. And both sides still divided, but on opposite sides from each other. It's a way more complicated issue. She should not have reopened. She should have respected the rule of law. They should not have put her in jail. They should have respected her need to take care of her family. The Supreme Court of Texas ordered her out of jail yesterday afternoon saying that there's a global pandemic on. You can't put people like that in jail. And then Greg Abbott revised his orders on openings and what must be closed to say no one could be jailed for violating that order. Good for him. That was the right call. But here's the ultimately the bottom line for me. None of us who are alive today right now have ever seen a global pandemic. None of us have seen 75,000 of our fellow countrymen die in 10 weeks from one thing. The weekly death toll from COVID-19 in the United States right now kills more people than heart disease or cancer or drownings or the flu or anything else. We've never seen anything like it. Our officials who are supposed to have all the answers don't have answers because they've never seen anything like it. The only thing we can do is show each other grace. Our elected officials who've never seen anything like this need grace to mess up, grace to get it right, grace to plod through it, eyes closed and arms in front of them feeling their way. And the people who are going through it and and have never seen anything like it and have never had to be forced to stay home and are seeing their businesses go away and their customer base go away and their jobs go away, you got to show them grace too because they've never seen anything like it either. Nobody really has grace for anybody anymore though. And I've just gone off the rails today on stuff to talk about, haven't I? Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. The governor of Illinois is uh, ordering churches to stay closed for up to a year. He says they'll limit church size. Actually, it's, it's been kind of misrepresented in the press. No more than 50 people in a church. Can you, how do you say unconstitutional? Um, what, what's going on here is, is we've still got a level of fear in our, our discussion here. And again, uh, th- this goes back to, to everything that I have said previously that we need a level of grace. We need a level of grace in what we do and how we consider public officials flying blind through a pandemic. But I gotta tell you, grace or no, it it just seems silly to tell churches that they have to remain closed for up to a year or limit their congregational size to 50. Now, uh, the reality is that most churches will not be affected by this because most of the churches will not have more than 50 people, but they're also smaller buildings. But uh, why must a mega church 
that can hold 5,000 people be limited to 50 when they can do social distancing and, and get more people in? It, it seems very silly and very heavy-handed. And that is, that's part of my problem here with, with everything that's going on is I suspect most Americans polling shows are okay with the social distancing and the sheltering in place. In fact, two thirds of Americans, regardless of political party, and that's the notable thing here is, is uh, if you listen to most talk radio or watch Fox news by and large right now, you're fairly well convinced that every Republican and every conservative in America is ready to break out of their house and, and march on city hall or the state Capitol to demand everyone get out of their house. And in fact, a majority of Republicans, a majority of Democrats and a majority of independents are actually perfectly fine sheltering in place and are worried we're going to get out too soon. They're worried about a rebound of the virus. But those who are aggressively opposed to sheltering in place right now, one, understand the motives. Many of them, it is economic ruin and loss that they're concerned about, and it is a legitimate concern. And you can say that, well, it's not as legitimate a concern as death, but when you know that more than half of the deaths are taking place in nursing homes and that if you're under the age of 60, the odds of dying are actually pretty small, and if you have no pre-existing conditions and you're over the age of 60, the odds are pretty small of you dying, well, you should be able to chart ways around uh, sheltering in place to get to a reopening that is responsible, much like Governor Kemp in Georgia is trying to do. But the heavy hand of the law that we have seen when it comes to this virus has been utterly ridiculous. The video of the police trying to chase down the jogger on the beach in California should be uh, burned into your memory as a bit of stupidity from law enforcement. The SWAT team showing up in West Texas to the overweight members of the SWAT team, by the way, I, I mean, listen, I, I'm not exactly a spry guy. My goodness. Um, but but I, 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 my gut does not spill over like those law enforcement officials coming out of the SWAT van in Texas did. Goodness gracious. Is there not a fitness test for the SWAT team? Uh, it, it was ridiculous. It was shameful to see the heavy-handed nature of the police. If you're going to actually call for grace, as I do for local officials, don't be overhanded little tyrannical despots in what you're doing. Try to make people understand it. It's just, it's, it's been ridiculous to see the way this has played out for so many people out there and what they're doing. No one wants to be measured in their response right now. And you got to have some level of measured response. Well, I have it, but I feel obligated to welcome. It is Eric Erickson here across the state of Georgia, around the nation now. The phone number here, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. If you want to call in, uh, if you're in one of our North Georgia audiences, in one of our North Georgia markets, you got rain uh, and it's going to get a little bit heavier uh, here in the day. There will be rain headed into Athens and Clarksville and even up to Blue Ridge and, and uh, Blairsville here, just a little bit in the middle Georgia area where I am. Uh, there is rain in Bibb and Houston County and Crawford County. There's actually heavy rain to the east of Roberta headed in towards Macon. Uh, South Georgia looks okay for now, uh, but there are lines of shatters, uh, sh lines of shatters, lines of showers scattered about. Um, so make sure your headlights are on if you're on the road listening as well. If you're at home, you can tell your smart speaker to listen to us. Uh, just whatever station you're listening on, 
uh, tell your smart speaker to listen to us and more likely you'll be able to find us. I, I need to get back to the Tara Reid situation because there's news on the Tara Reid situation. Um, it, so they have found court documents from the mid-90s. If I read right, hang on a second. Let me let me not do this one from memory because I had so much stuff going on the other day. Uh, it does appear, yes. Uh, this is the San Luis Obispo Tribune. Amazing the national press could not do this. This is a local reporter. A court document from 1996 shows former Senate staffer Tara Reid told her ex-husband she was sexually harassed while working for Joe Biden in 1993. The declaration exclusively obtained by the Tribune in San Luis Obispo, California, does not say Biden committed the harassment, nor does it mention Reid's more recent allegations of sexual assault. Reid's then-husband, Theodore Dronin, wrote the court declaration. Dronin at the time was contesting a restraining order Reid filed against him days before he filed for divorce, Superior Court records show. In it, he writes, Reed told him about a problem she was having at work regarding sexual harassment in U.S. Senator Joe Biden's office. It appears to be the only written record that has surfaced from the time that substantiates Reed shared her account in the years following the alleged incident. Though a former neighbor came forward last week about similar conversations she said she had with Reed in 95. The news came as Reed was preparing for the release of her first on-camera interview since the former vice president and presumptive Democratic nominee for president personally denied the allegations May 1st on MSNBC. Former Fox News, and notice they don't say NBC, former Fox News host Megyn Kelly tweeted about the interview Thursday morning calling it a riveting exchange. In the filing, dated March 25th, 96, Dronin testified that he met Reed in the spring of 93 while the two worked for separate members of Congress in Washington, D.C. Dronin wrote that Reed told him she eventually struck a deal with the chief of staff of the Senate's office and left her position. It was obvious that this event had a very traumatic effect on Reed and that she is still sensitive and affected by it today. What? How can this be? Y'all, it's worth pointing out that at this point, we have more corroboration and evidence that something happened to Tara Reid than we ever had with Christine Blasey Ford. And yet Democrats are dismissive of Tara Reid. Do you think the media is going to cover this? You know what? Let, let, let's do this. Um, I've got access to a site where I can go in and I can see, is anybody in the national press talking about this story from the San Luis Obispo Tribune, I, I I bet they're not. I bet they're not. It, it, it doesn't appear that doesn't. Nope. Nope. Nobody's nobody seems to be talking about it. Nope. Nobody seems to be talking about it. Amazing. By the way, did you hear the the there was a virtual rally for Joe Biden staff and, and none of it worked. It, it didn't work. There were technical glitches. Uh, you know, about the only person who has talked about the Tara Reid thing today, let, let's, this is the president. He was on uh, Fox News this morning, and they asked him about it. Well, let's see. Can I get my audio? Re I'm doing this on the fly, folks. Bear with me. I am a professional. And next year, we're going to have a phenomenal year. People are ready to go. we got to get it open. People, uh, safely. People are ready to go. 
Mr. President, let's talk about the presidential race because uh, we're about six months away. And last night, Tara Reid had an interview. Uh, she's the accuser accusing Joe Biden of sexual harassment, which he denies. But she said that she wants him to drop out of the race. She said, I bet he won't, but she's calling on him to drop out. What's your reaction? Well, I got to see a piece of it. And, you know, look, he's got to fight that battle. I've had battles, too, where I've had false accusations many times. I think you understand that. We had one uh, recently, a woman in Florida made an accusation, and it was on tape, it was on a camera. And the judge is furious, they went to court, because I'm not gonna, you know, do, we, they made a false accusation. It went to court and proved my case 100%. I got lucky. Somebody so are was you saying what she's saying is false? Meeting. I don't know if it's false or not. I mean, Joe's gonna have to be able to prove whatever he has to prove or she has to prove it, but that's a battle he has to fight. I've had many false accusations made, I can tell you that. Men you know, it, <laughs> so I can't wait for the Democrats to say, listen, even Donald Trump doesn't believe her and he would know. <laughs> that puts the Democrats in such an awkward spot. They can't do that. It's like, remember, 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 let, let, let's go back to this. Let me play this soundbite for you. I told the governor of Georgia, Brian Kemp, that I disagree strongly with his decision to open certain facilities which are in violation of the phase one guidelines for the incredible people of Georgia. They're incredible people. I love those people. They are, they're great. They've been strong, resolute, but at the same time, he must do what he thinks is right. I want him to do what he thinks is right. Uh, but I disagree with him on what he's doing. But I want to let the governors do. Now, if I see something totally egregious, totally out of line, I'll do. But I think spas and beauty salons and tattoo parlors and barber shops in uh, phase one, we're going to have phase two very soon. Is just too soon. I think it's too soon. The, the Democrats after that, there's so many Democrats who came out and said, I, I, I agree with the president on this. I mean, the, it was just, it was like having to force themselves to say, I agree with Trump. Sir, can you say that again? I agree with Trump. <laughs> he didn't want to do it. And so now they're going to come out with this. Just listen, Donald Trump says he doesn't know if she's telling. Hey, Donald Trump doesn't tell. Donald Trump says there can be fake accusations. And see, they can't do that. They can't. They can't come out and say it might be a fake accusation like Trump says because they believe all the accusations against him. <laughs> it's oh, they're going to have such a hard time. I agree with Trump. <laughs> Oh, man, does it put him in a tough spot for Donald Trump to be taken up for Joe Biden there? I mean, so the, the question is, is, is the president doing this as part of a mass? Many of you will say he's doing it as part of mass. Well, I actually think the president's just just talking. He has had a bunch of accusers. I don't think there's a grand plot here to get the Democrats to have to force themselves in an awkward position against Joe Biden. But that's the net result of it, is it not? They don't they don't they don't want to be on the same side as Donald Trump on this. And and man, that's going to make them have to question it. What on earth?
Here's the problem, though. I don't think Tara Reid should have said Biden should get out. Um, because that makes it look uh, too political. She should stay away from that. She should... Um, she she shouldn't be going down the road of making this about the presidential campaign. She should be going down the road of making it about what actually happened. What did actually happen? What what happened there? But again, we got more evidence now, more corroboration with Tara Reid than we ever had with Christine Blasey Ford, ever had with Christine Blasey Ford. And notice the media now wants to drop it. Look at it. They had the Joe Biden interview. Mika Brzezinski asked him questions, and now it's done. There is not a lot of buzz out there among the press today about this uh, document from 1996 in a in a court statement a declaration under oath by uh, Tara Reid's ex-husband that she had been sexually harassed in Joe Biden's office, and it was traumatic. You would think there would be more exposure. You know how the media angle is? Tara Reid now has a lawyer. The lawyer represented a number of women against Harvey Weinstein. But he's a Trump donor. That's right. So the media is covering this. Uh, the Time Magazine's reporter, oh, she's hired a Trump donor to be her lawyer. Yeah. You know what? No one ever questioned Christine Blasey Ford's lawyers uh, being Democratic partisans. No one ever questioned that uh, they were friendly with Nancy Pelosi. No one ever questioned the Democratic ties to Christine Blasey Ford's lawyers. No, everyone ignored when Christine Blasey Ford's lawyer came forward and said the only reason Christine Blasey Ford was coming forward was Roe v. Wade. Nobody in the media questioned that. Most of them completely ignored it. They, and it was she was caught on video. The lawyer was caught on video saying Christine Blasey Ford had an obligation to protect Roe v. Wade or some such. And the media ignored it. But holy moly, suddenly now it, it's this lawyer. He's a Trump. Never mind that he represented women going after Harvey Weinstein. Never mind that he has a career of doing this. He gave money to Donald Trump. Therefore, Tara Reid is discredited because of her lawyer. They would never, ever hold anyone else to that standard. And yet they're going to do it there. And that, my friends, is a real, real double standard in the press that further undermines the press. That at a time that the press is, the reputation of the press is at an all-time low you would think if they could play it straight on that they could play it a, a partisanship, they, they could play it as partisans on so many other issues. And if they played it straight on this one, a lot of people would give them the benefit of the doubt. But they, they're not even capable of doing that. They got to go after Tara Reid now because her lawyer gave a political contribution to Donald Trump. That should tell you everything you need to know about where the press is headed with this. And also probably why Tara Reid should not have gone there on Joe Biden needs to get out of the race. She should let the accusations speak for themselves instead of giving commentary on the le- on the rest of it. Hello there. It is Eric Erickson here. Let, let's see. What is what is this? Um, turns out a lot of people. So what? Huh? Oh, okay. 
Uh, you know who Shannon Watts is? She's the not quite stable uh, gun rights activist who blocks everyone on Twitter. Uh, and uh, she is circulating a photoshopped image of a guy, of a man running for Congress uh, that claims his wife gave him a, a T-shirt that said Moms Demand Action, which is Shannon Watts group. And it's uh, a pretty, well, <laughs> I laughed, but I can't describe it for you. Uh, but it appears that um, she made it all up. And now the guy's wondering if he should uh, sue um, is Shannon Watts for slandering his wife? Man, Shannon Watts is, is man that that woman. She's a she's a bag of crazy. Um, <sighs> I'm sorry. I think I'm blocked by her now on Twitter as well. Gun rights. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. She. I mean, she just makes stuff up about people. I've never seen someone with that high a profile who just makes stuff up about other people. Um, but she does. Okay, we got to move on. So you know, by the way. I want to get into some Georgia news now. The governor's press conference yesterday about what was going on. Before I do, can I just lament because I got people asking to have my, no, my rec tech grill is not coming yet. So I got my Mrs. Griffin's barbecue sauce. Mrs. Griffin's is a sponsor of the program. Uh, if you have not gotten Mrs. Griffin's barbecue sauce, you should. Uh, it is the oldest still commercially produced barbecue sauce in the nation. It's good stuff. It's an old school Southern recipe from right here in Georgia. Uh, they're headquartered here in Macon. Uh, you want to support a local business in Georgia? There's one to support. Get your Mrs. Griffin's barbecue sauce and Thank you to their sponsorship, and I've got some to go on the wings that I bought. I wound up actually tossing them because I was waiting for my grill to come, and, and now it's not going to be here until next week, and I could smell something stinky in the refrigerator last night, and it was the wings that I had bought that I was waiting for the grill to come. And So at least Mrs. Griffin's isn't going to spoil. I'll save it for next week. The data in Georgia is good. Let me give you the, the optimistic stuff here. Let, let's end the show on a high note here. Dr. Toomey, Kathleen Toomey, is the head of public health in Georgia. And two weeks ago, she set a goal. She wanted 100,000 tests conducted in two weeks in Georgia. In less than a week, they've done 110,000 tests, which shows that the testing in Georgia has ramped up to a place that uh, we can be uh, comfortable with. It is good that the testing capacity has gotten to where it is now. And the data continues to improve, which is fantastic. That is great. Uh, that is good news. And we should all be encouraged by it. We should also know that there are hot spots in the state of Georgia. And those hot spots are in poultry and, and meat packaging facilities, like in Gainesville. Uh, the Gainesville situation is somewhat unique. And that was part of what the governor's press conference was on yesterday, is in Gainesville, there's a poultry facility. The people stand elbow to elbow, essentially, uh, dealing with uh, chickens, uh, carving up chickens and packaging them. It is mostly Hispanic workers. And they mostly live together in tenement housing, uh, multiple people packed into houses, very much like the uh, situation in Singapore. If, if you read the headlines about Singapore right now, COVID-19 is spiking in Singapore. It's rebounding. It's a second wave in Singapore. But it turns out when you when you delve into the information, when you delve into the data, 
where COVID-19 is rebounding is not in the general population, but in these uh, migrant worker tenement houses uh, where people live um, piled on top of each other in the houses and then they go work in factories together. Those are the people who are getting reinfected and there is concern that they could spread into the community, but they're watching it. That's what's happening in Gainesville, Georgia. There's a huge outbreak in Gainesville, uh, but it is in the poultry facility of uh, migrant Hispanic workers who all live together in kind of a, a communal housing setup. And so the governor, to his credit, has formed a Spanish-speaking task force to go in and educate these people and talk to these people and, and let them know that uh, there's help for them. This is what they need to do. These are the symptoms, uh, and they need to get medical attention. What we are finding with COVID-19 is that if you get symptoms and don't get medical attention, most people, you've been hearing this on TV that, you know, most people, you're going to get a mild case, stay home. But what people are finding is that they need to get medical exam they need to get looked at at least because if the virus does begin to spiral by the time it spirals it can be too late and that's one of their worries up in Gainesville is that these people are going to not go get treatment uh, some of them aren't going to do it because they're illegal aliens frankly they, they don't want to get deported and so we're having to reassure everyone you're not going to get deported and I know some of that drives some of you crazy but let me explain this to you Let's say you got an illegal alien who gets COVID-19 in Gainesville and you decide, well, this guy needs to be deported because he's an illegal alien. He is, one, not going to go get treatment and he's going to stay home and spread it to other people. Or he's going to go and they're going to round him up and he's going to be in a detention facility and he's going to get all those people and the guards infected. In one Georgia county, the guards are um, the guards have gotten sick, and they're spreading. What county is it? Um, is it Elbert County? And the guards have taken it back into the community, and and it started rebounding there. They had to catch it, nip it in the bud there, and that's what's going to happen uh, with immigration officials too. If you do this, it's going to spread. You got to contain it, and one of the best ways to contain it is to have these people not be scared about getting deported right now. Some things are more important than deporting illegal aliens right now, and stopping a global pandemic is one of them. You got to be careful, and. That's the hot spot. The rest of the state actually is doing well. The trend lines in Albany, they're headed in the right direction. The trend lines in the metro Atlanta area headed in the right direction. There is concern about the reopening. That is why the governor wants people to wear masks. I, I, I see, I, I think it's Jim Galloway in the AJC is uh, being critical of Tim Bryant, who is on our flagship station, WGAU in Athens, um, that, that uh, Tim Bryant doesn't want to wear a mask in public. And, and Jim Galloway, I think, has, has taken him to some task in his uh, column in the AJC. I'm pretty sure Tim Bryant doesn't care. Uh, and I would tell you, as long as other people are wearing masks, uh, maybe you're okay with that one. But I, I would be in the you should wear a mask camp. There is no law, though. No one is going to make you wear a mask. There are some stores that will require you to make a, a mask. And then I got to see the I see the video of the police officer body slamming the woman in Alabama because she didn't have on a mask. And I think, you know what, just to protest that, that idiot, I'm not going to wear one. But I, I got to. My, my wife is high risk. I went to the grocery store yesterday and had my mask on. Um, but I do have to say, 
there's a, an editorialist in Louisiana who says it's the greatest civil rights violation in American history to make people wear a mask. Uh, it, it's real easy for a white guy to say that. You, you ask uh, black Americans if it's a big civil rights violation in, in American history, and they'll laugh at you. Let's keep things in perspective over the weekend.